Hello and welcome to My First Dungeon, the tabletop role-playing podcast where we help players learn new games and make each one better than the last. Each season, we choose a new game and a different GM to run it. Then we circle back around to discuss what went right, what went wrong, and how we can make our next game even better. This season, I'm going to be running a game that asks its players to consider the very nature of role-playing games and why it is that we play them. The game is called Die, and it was created alongside the British Fantasy Award-winning and Hugo-nominated comic of the same name. In the comic, a group of six teenagers sit around a table to play an RPG and wind up pulled into a fantasy world of their own creation. This game invites you to do the same. As always on this show, we want to set game masters and players up for success by bringing on the very best teachers and resources possible. And what better teacher could there be than the writer and creator of this very game? He is a comic book writer you may know from Phonogram, The Wicked and the Divine, and a number of Marvel projects including Immortal X-Men, and of course, he is the creator of Die. Please welcome Kieran Gillen. Kieran, welcome to the show. Very nice to be here. Very nice to have you. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I'm super excited to talk to you about this incredibly cool comic and this incredibly cool game. Thank you. You just made me bashful because the intro was very uh, effusive. So I'm, I'm aggressively British, so I'm going to be shy now. Oh, that's I, I, sh- I should have toned it down for, for the British guests. I should have done yeah. that. But if that wasn't enough, we also have another guest joining us today. He is a returning voice to the show and is the creative director of Rowan, Rook, and Deckard, who are publishing Die. He's the creator of Heart, Spire, and dozens of one-page RPGs, including the ever-popular Honey Heist. Please welcome back Grant Howitt. Hello. Hi. I need to get Hugo nominated, I think. I don't know how you do it, but I've, I've really got to, just, just to try and keep up during the intros. Multiple Hugo nominations, let's be honest. Oh, multiple Hugo. Oh, man. Oh. Or I need to educate more people as to what the Ennies are, because no one really knows what they are. <laughs> You've won a lot of them now, too. More, heart won more than any other book that has, has ever won, but no one really cares. And like, I'll, I'll be trying to sell the book at cons and be like, do you know what an Ennie is? No. Oh, all right. Okay, cool. Thanks. <laughs> it's just my life. Kieran, I'm going to ask you a very broad question. What is the, the elevator pitch for Die? What is this game and who is it made for? Who is playing this game? All good questions. Uh, basically, when I was starting the comic book Die with Stephanie Hans, at least part of it was like we wanted to do stuff only we would really do. And I have weird history of games, which I'm sure we'll probably touch on later. And I thought, I oh, know, I'll do a full game from scratch. Uh, like the first arc of the comic is called Fancy Heartbreaker, which is the, you know, the term for like a your homemade ill-thought-out RPG. And I thought, I'll do my own ill-thought-out RPG, but I'll try to do it well. Uh, but I'll still call the first arc Fancy Heartbreaker to cover my ass. Um, so <laughs> the idea was basically, I wanted to really sort of, I was trying to a friend of mine, Amal, who uh, she wrote the... Um, I co-wrote the book How to Lose the Time War about we find really interesting about games is that especially from the narrative side is that basically mechanics and structures and rituals are ways of teaching people how to make story as in if you can boil the story down to a set of rituals you can allow people to create stories of their own and that's what we want to do with Die because it's kind of show okay this is how we do it and in the case in Die you've got a group of you know you gave me the intro the short version is a group of messed up human beings from the real world get dragged up into a fantasy world that kind of echoes their real life trauma and losses and hopes and fears. And then they decide to go home or not. And basically we, that's our game. We take, a, we give, how do you make a real group of like people? We ask questions and you find it in the group together. And you take them to the fantasy world. We give structures to the, uh, for the GM to work out, okay, how do you make this world really matter to this people? You know, it's not enough to have a dragon. This dragon has to echo their distant, you know, mother, fear, you know, whatever, you know? And then you've also got at the end, the climax, 
And the fact that Dyer's a very kind of um, ritualized climax where you all decide to go home or not, and also they've got to be unanimous. There's an there's a built-in, you know, full-on your place where you're heading. So that's kind of the it. And it's sort of the, the implicit thing is like, no matter what characters you make up, as in we call the persona, they're going to say something about you. And you end up sort of thinking, so why do I play games? It's fantasy better than reality. There's a, they're kind of the themes. But reality is about how mess, messed up people in a fantasy world that echoes themselves trying to basically heal or not. And that's kind of what it's about. And also people get stabbed at various points with magical swords, as is the want. Well, of course. I mean, you got it. There's some tropes you just have to hit. Yeah. It's still like, D&D, yeah. Like, whenever I pitch diets, oh, it sounds very arty. But at the same time, yeah, you're, you're killing orcs. You, get, you have both in that way, because that's kind of what games are. And the level of orc killing versus crying in a circle will depend on who's playing the game, which is the point of the game. Does that answer the question? That absolutely <laughs> that answers. That, I've got to rewrite my intro, because you're obviously you're way better at selling this game. <laughs> He's had a bit of practice. A little bit more practice than me, you know, once or twice. I remember reading this comic. I, I was introduced to the comic by a friend, uh, Elliot Davis, who's been on the show before. He's like, oh, you got to read this. It's so cool. And I didn't immediately know it was a game as well. It was being developed as a game as well. So I read the comic and it hit all the, the best parts of me of like wanting to get pulled into a fantasy game, that type of thing. But the aspect of having to vote to go home is such a great driving force for a, a tabletop role-playing game because it immediately grabs players and there's that immediate kind of like intra-party conflict-ish. Who wants to say, why do you want to stay? Why do you want to go home? It immediately does something that I think really good games do of providing a lot of immediate help for the players. Like immediately they know this is who I am. I'm making a choice because the game has kind of provided me the opportunity to answer that question. Yeah. I'll say that the thing about Die, especially you describe it, it sounds so messy. People go, oh, isn't that going to be a bit cold and acerbic or whatever? And it's like, no. I mean, the, the, the structure of the game is like, you make the messed up people, you know what they're like, because you know messed up people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and the fact that you all know where you're heading, you all know the choices you're making and what, okay, do I want to go home or not? So all the way through, you've got so many great like things to support you as players that you're not lost. You're really actually much more guided than many other games. So um, that's definitely like kind of what we we're aiming for, I think. I will, I will also like to say that Die comes with, uh, I think, unique to unique to a role-playing game as heavy as Die can get. It has, it has an irony safety net mm. in that you're not really these people. In the, in the let's, let's say we were playing a standard role-playing game and my character has feelings. I have to, uh, you know, say, oh, how would my character feel and what am I doing? And then, but in, in Die, you're playing generally an angsty teenager Who's pretending to be a, 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 a warrior, who's pretending to be a wizard of some kind. And so by having that remove, you can you can explore these things. And at any point, if it gets a little bit uncomfortable, you can go, well, it isn't real, is it? But it is real, and you're still reacting. But it mm. gives you this, it gives you a tremendous again, like um, as Kieran was saying, we're both we're both British. <laughs> um, and there is a certain measure of uh, not wishing to wear our hearts on our sleeves. And uh, I think that Dai is excellently positioned to let us just very carefully roll up our sleeve and just show the tip of our heart <laughs> to people. <laughs> it's like when I was playing Tales from the Loop, that was the, one of the first thing that struck me is immediately you play, by playing teenagers, you were, you're allowed to be a little bit more raw. You know, mm-hmm. it's why Monster Heart works so well as well. Um, so in Dai is like the basic game of Dai is you describe yourself as teenagers and then you kind of get together like 10 or 20 years later. So it's basically that kind of, oh yeah, you were kids once and now you're a little bit older. So you're also basically, you're in your embarrassing teenage fantasy world aspect to it. And that always gives out the just A, gives it elements of irony, but it also gives it elements of fun. Like if the board doesn't make much sense, it's fine. 
You've got, you've got, you've been forgiven, GM, because it's basically a bunch of like, this is a load of tropes who were put together by teenagers who didn't know any better right. uh, and let their id go crazy, you know? Um, yeah. So th- there's lots of those kind of push and pull. So it's very serious, but it's also very goofy. And that's kind of, mm. that's very British as well. And I think that's like, um, mm. also that, that sort of makes it very at home with Roman Rook and Deckard, I think, you know, there's element of yeah. like. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We we've always I think like the the phrase which I haven't which, which which I use internally but not externally is feet on the ground head in the clouds. Oh, which is the idea that it should be daft and fantastical and mundane. And so like the idea like the, like the idea for heart is not high fantasy or low fantasy. But what if high fantasy was shit? <laughs> <laughs> and and just like there's something quite fun about about okay everyone's trying their best and it isn't really working. And, uh, and 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 like that's that's that that's the core message of Die as well is that like none of the protagonists or I'd even say the antagonists in the comic book really have a full understanding of what's going on and and, and are just sort of rattling around inside infrastructure they didn't build. Mm. And speaking as someone who's part of late stage capitalism, it's something which I feel quite <laughs> I feel quite strongly. I am really looking forward to that that, that layer of that kind of additional layer of removal is interesting. Because I'm super looking forward to the point that you talk about in Rituals, which is kind of the the way this game was initially intended to be played, like a two to four session game, where you build your personas together. So you're building the characters you're going to be playing. You step away from the table and you come back in. And now it's kind of like a mini Nordic LARP that you have where you're fully in character as those characters building your paragons, which are, you know, the this game's term for classes, going into the world. I'm so excited for the moment where we step away and we come back and the game has fully begun. And I think that setting this up like that is setting up the players in the game masters for success in a way that I've not seen a lot of other games do because you're coming in right away, you know what you're doing and it gives you just so much freedom to come into that space and start making up in that crazy way. I think it's going to get really great buy-in from all the players immediately, which is like half the battle for a game master. Thank you. Also, that, that, that's the thing. So much of the rituals is giving sizzle. Like the idea, you know, the, the mm-hmm. especially rituals where these are good cliffhangers. We end the first episode here. It's a good beat. You know what I mean? Like, so people will come back next week wanting more. We end at the conclusion. That's also a good beat. And the whole game is kind of like, my, I mean, I've played a lot of games, but it's my love letter a lot. You know, the fact we literally have a mini Nordic LARP halfway for the first session. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like, okay, can we get a Nordic LARP, a taste of Nordic LARP in here? Like you start with kind of like a very story game. It's all about answering questions, very for the queen. You you build a story together. Then when you go in the world, it's very much like there's a bit more honest and Gygax in there. You know, it's a bit more that. And the whole game, but the, the story game side never stops. So it's all about the dialogue between the suggestions. You know what I mean? Like, so it's about all the shit I love in that way. Um, and that's, I, I think the hope that comes across is like you, you sample stuff. And, okay, drop this beat. This will work for you, I guess. In terms of the rituals, which we put in there, like one of the things we were really keen to do at Rowan Rick and Deckard is take Kieran's work and make it more ritualized mm. and try and have the idea of, because he already had the idea of, the, of handing around the dice and like these objects of power. Um, but part of the experience of playing role-playing games as a young person is the GM not quite understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, there's a system. I don't quite get it, but we'll do it. And the thing is, if you follow the rules, the game works. And if you follow the rituals, die works, and you get this emotional thing. But again, it's got that it's got that ironic safety catch. It's got it's it's it's, it's got the safety belt where you can go, oh, this is a bit weird. Anyway, I'll read it aloud, and then it, and everyone the hairs on everyone's neck start tingling because it's there, there's something magic spell like about it, in that you read through it and it does the thing. Yeah. And we want to, we want you to feel safe and excited. 
It's like when you hand out the dice, as Grant was saying, it's like you hand out the dice to everyone. And then at the end, you're like, everyone take the dice, close your eyes and lower them to the table. Now count to three and we'll open your eyes. You're somewhere else. You know what I mean? And that always works. Not just despite the silliness, because of the silliness. You know what I mean? Mm. We've all made this little leap together. We've done this little ritual. We play this little game. And so much of die came from the idea of like, die is a magical object. You know, all the dice in D&D, they look weird. That's why parents were scared of them. The, the kids suddenly had these, what are they, are they artifacts from an evil god? You know what I mean? And like Dai just goes, yes, let's say they were. Let's put, let's take into the weird magic circle nature of uh, RPGs and what we can do to make it feel cre- creepy is the wrong word, but feel enchanted. As it lean into that stuff, and that's something I love about like r- rituals. It's, it's a really good word. Like was it? I forget it was Grant or Zach who put the word ritual on it. But like that, that was so much about like ca- lean into the the spooky cultiness of it. Mm-hmm. I do think rituals in games was not a thing I'd really thought about until I just recently played my first game of 10 Candles. Ah, yes. And that game, I mean... That's 110% ritual. It's entirely ritual, but I didn't realize how well it would work until we started passing around the tape recorder. And then the first time we said, and we are alive in that game, the tone around the table completely, like everyone was so in. And like one one of the players immediately kind of like, you know, curled up a little bit like, I didn't like that. That was that was terrifying. That was scary. That was proper scary. It makes things very familiar and very easy to get onto. It's a great on ramp for a game. I've got a hack of ten candles I want to do. Uh, make it around oh, sweets. Uh, it's like a Halloween game. Ten candies, and just everyone has to eat the sweets <laughs> as, the, as the game goes to the end. Uh, there's a few I've more got, things than that. <laughs> I've got a two Ronnie's hack called Four Candles. It's much shorter. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk more about the rituals aspect of this game, but before we kind of dive into playing sessions of the game, I want to talk a little bit about the specific mechanics of the game. So die is built around a D6 system, but there are also the, the main six polyhedral die involved. Can you talk a little bit about the core game mechanic and then how those polyhedral dice, the D20, D12, D10, D8, D64, kind of come into the paragons? Okay. Like when I was starting die, I realized so a few things. I wanted to feel like the sort of game that a precocious teenager in 1991 might have made, assuming they knew more than they could know. So, like, in some ways, like, in 1991, if you were the sort of person who were listening to this podcast, you probably wouldn't have, you'd been, probably been weirdly snooty about the weirdest stuff. So, like, I, yeah. I would have not played D&D in 1991. Specifically, 16-year-old snooty Kieran wouldn't have. But I would have been into dice pools because Vampire just started. And, you know, and Cyberpunk was happening and all those kind of stuff. I know Cyberpunk wasn't dice pool, but you know what I mean? Like, the dice pool was the new hotness. So, clearly, Soul's going to use dice pool. But there's the other aspect of dice pools, so the fact that I wanted all the characters to have ownership of one of the dice. Uh, and that's that kind of... So, everyone gets to touch one dice. And, of course, that means that you could do a game where only you just roll one. And trust that someone's done that recently. It's really interesting. But that was a bit too formalist for the for no sake. I thought, okay, one of these dice has to be the basic dice. The D6. The D6 is, in cultural speaking, the basic dice. So it's got through enough D6s. People know what D6s are. And the other side of it is, I also knew that I wanted a really robust, simple core mechanic because all the classes mechanics are going to be weird. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets the basics. And then everyone is always so doing their individual kind of very asymmetrical meta game. So the system I went for is, it was a little bit influenced by the, um, actually, Warhammer 3rd edition of all things, uh, but you know, it became Cortex later. Um, because I really liked how there's a, like two economies in that. So the way it works is this. You take your stat, number of D6, you add any advantages, add a dice, any disadvantages, take away a dice. You've got a difficulty, we'll worry about that later. You throw the dice, four pluses of successes. If you've got any successes after difficulty is removed, uh, you do it. If not, you fail. That's the core cool mechanic. There's also um, 
a second one. Like if you roll six uh, on the dice, you get to activate special effects. So in other words, you, your character may have a variety of special effects you can activate, and you have to choose what to spend your sixes on. That's the sort of the spice. And that's it. You know, that, that's really the kind of the basics. And there's lots of ways you can interpret it. Like that's the kind of what I wanted to. I want to do something that would work for me as a GM. So it was, yeah, this is the basics. But like, I'm going to set like a total of successes and the whole point, I'm going to try to get them. Or I'll try to create something complicated like a Powered by the Apocalypse move. You know, it supports all that kind of stuff. But the core is roll dice, four plus success, hit total, get it. And then you've got the, the, the extra polyhedrals. And all the classes get to add their own dice in different situations. And that speaks to what the classes are. Because the one thing we haven't really talked about yet is that the Paragons are all kind of deconstructions of the classic D&D sorts. You know, like, we don't have warriors, we have emotion knights, we don't have rogues, we have Neo. And all these are kind of like a discussion of, like, what does that class really be like? Like Neo, that's a good example. Neo is um, a sort of a cyberpunk class weirdly dropped into a fantasy game. That's me riffing on a Shadowrun, of course, also 91, 92. So that kind of, like, what these kids would have been into. And it's about a few other things, like the D10 is the newest dice in existence. That's the one that didn't exist in ancient times. So that's, you know, there's always also what's the, what actually uh, Cyberpunk 2020 ran off, although kind of that meta stuff. But in reality, it's like, what are rogues? Rogues steal stuff. And people in traditionally in games were worried about rogues because they you know, they're thieves. And it's like, well, all characters are thieves. All they do <laughs> is steal stuff. What? Why? And I thought, no, let's mechanize it. So the case of the Neo, they have to collect something called Fair Gold. They have their special abilities, the gifts, which are basically cybernetic, you know, power-ups. And they have to activate their gifts every day, otherwise they don't do anything. So in other words, you've got a class here who is desperate for a resource. And if they don't get the resource, they can't do anything. In other words, everyone in the party is worried about this, what this person will do for this one resource. And that's the kind of tension, that's their spice. And if they actually use their gift, they get to add their D10 to the dice pool. So in other words, let's say the, the, the Neo's using their gun. You know, they've powered up their gun with fair gold. Now they can shoot. So they roll the dexterity pools up. Say you've got decks of three, roll three dice. If you've got the gun turned on, they also include the D10. And of course, the most basic thing about the gun being turned on is a D10 is better than a D6. You mm-hmm. know, if it's four plus for a success, D10 is much better at getting successes. It's also much better at getting specials. You know what I mean? So like in a very real and mechanical way, the players are better than anyone else you meet in the game because only the players get dice. You know, these are literally part of the icon is there's only one D10 in the game. That means everyone else you meet won't have that D10 that you basically start the game with the equivalent of the Rings of Power. So anytime you get to like put the, your special dice in the game, it's kind of magical because only you get to play with the D10. Only you get to play with the D12 if you're a Godbinder. All the classes have other things to do with the dice as well. I originally started by trying to make a completely different way of interacting with the dice for all the players and none of them overlapped in any way. Mm-hmm. And the more I got into it, the more I realized, no, actually just adding it to the dice pool is just fun. People like that. <laughs> and there's a few other things, you know, there's other stuff in the mix. People always really like adding like, more dice to the dice pool. Like when the master gets to add a D20, knowing they get a success on a four plus, that's kind of like, how, it's like a, how dare you? That That's literally unfair, Absolutely. which is the point of that class. But that's the core mechanic. Roll dice four plus. It's great. I spoke for 10 minutes to say roll dice plus four plus. That, that's, that's my way I roll. Honestly, it's a great, very simple mechanic. It's very easy to explain, very easy to understand. One of the questions I have is, I am very aware of like, uh, Dungeons and Dragons difficulty classes. So I know DC five, you're gonna get it. DC twenty is hard. DC fifteen is like kind of a standard. In die, what are the kind of the the levels of you know difficulty classes you would set for various actions? I've been gemmed by Kieran, and I want you to know that isn't the sort of thing which he cares about. <laughs> <laughs> he would much rather tell a story and not punish you for trying to do something difficult. 
So the odds of him using difficulty are pretty rare. They are there. And, and, and I will say, it's precisely the same thing that I write in my games, in that if we ever break out difficulty and spire our heart, everyone's like, oh, fine, all right, I suppose. It's already quite hard to roll the things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, sorry, that was, that, was, that, that was me attempting to undermine you before you answer the question very eloquently. <laughs> Successful. <laughs> You're not entirely wrong, though. This, I mean, the system is very much designed. So, what do you want to use difficulty for? What is difficult in your game? Yeah. Like, because if you statistically speaking, a normal stat is two. So, two dice, you've got you've got a fifty percent chance of, of getting one success. So, you got you're basically going to probably get one success. So, most of the things that's not quite right. I've got my brain has fell apart. It's late in the day here. Um, no, you got you know you got about slightly better. You've got over half. You got seventy five percent chance of success. But like almost anything normal, you don't roll. Is that right? So you got mm. 50, like anything think, normal you don't... I, I think it's 50. Is it 50? Why is my brain on that? Well, because only one of them has to do it and, and you're rolling it twice. Yeah, but if you, you roll know, one, like, it's 50% chance. Of, oh, it's half, yeah, you're right. Can we delete this whole bit from the... Wait, no, 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 wait, no, no, it isn't 50, it is more. I don't think Shit. it's 50, but I don't think it's 75. Jesus Christ. I think it's 75. It might be 75. I just Games designer, it. yeah. Okay, okay, no, no. I, I actually, actually, leave this bit in because, in, in fact, I want you to cut back in now with a bit that I, I say. My books won more role playing game awards than any other book. Uh, heart won more than any other book. In the original Dying Magic, it was an entire page about going through the odds. If you give difficulty X, what's the chance of success and all that kind of crap? And we cut it because it's not very important. In reality, it's like most stuff in Die you can do explicitly. If you were like say, because it's the other side of it. Stat two is normal. Stat three is as good as anyone on earth. Stat four is superhumanly good. Like you, even if you're not trained, you can basically do Olympic athlete stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, generally, and die characters probably start with like two stats of three or one stat of four. You are really good at what you do. So, in other words, like picking locks that ain't a problem for you. If if orcs are about to attack you, yeah, probably it's a problem, and then you might roll. To me, difficulty is all contextual. So, like picking a lock, if you if the neo has time, yeah, you can do it. If they've got someone coming, then you might roll. And even then, I'd probably just not set any difficulty. In other words, one success is good. But if things are tricky, I much more prefer to... There's a lot of fail forward in it, in that sure. kind of like... I'll set a difficulty of one, let's say. So I re- if set a difficulty of one, that means you've got to get two successes. And if you don't get two successes, I'll do a complication. It's the classic, oh, you're picking the lock, your lock pick breaks. Or, oh, there's guards behind the door. <laughs> you know, anything like that. Uh, so all those kind of things to keep the story rolling, that's what I'm interested in. That's where I think where the system excels. It's like it does some very heart-like stuff in terms of, okay, let's say, let's 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 zoom all the way out and do this battle as a kind of a big event. So everyone roll the dice pools. How many successes do you get? And then we're gonna if you get as many successes needed, you've won that battle. You know, or you can mm-hmm. zoom right in and go micro scale. And that's why it's in it's the success economy is what I'm thinking about. So the more I run die, the more actually I don't tend to use difficulty. I use success counts. Interesting. But that's kind of like harder to explain and also like more clumpy. Clumpy is a technical designer term, I think you'll find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's but a glass race on it. Yeah. But if you're running at the most basic club, you always, it's like for me, any great core mechanic or any good core mechanic, you can fall back to the basics. And it's that kind of like, okay, just roll dice four plus. If it's, if it's a bit quite tricky, uh, make it difficulty one, remove success. It's, if a human couldn't do it, two successes. Because that's going to, if you think about how the math works, if you remove two successes from, uh, if your stats got two, that means you can't succeed. <laughs> right. So that's the reason we're putting it. It's like zero, pretty, you know, whatever. One, really quite tricky. Two, human couldn't do it. That's the probably the basic way I would break it down. I would like to briefly touch on the um, one of the challenges of writing a core mechanic um, for a game such as Die, which is 
anything can happen in a game of Dough. And I don't mean that in a sort of ground up, anything can happen in a game. I mean, like, you can't predict what's going to happen because the, well, okay, like, okay, like, we know what classes there's going to be, but we don't know what the world is going to be. Uh, and it's expressly generated by the players and the GM at the start of the game as you make your characters and that all bubbles up. And so when it came to, say, for example, writing uh, writing down the difficulty examples, I think writing writing difficulty examples in games is 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 my least favorite part of my job. Mm. Mm. It's absolutely wretched. And in Die, it's much harder because everything is very well. I mean, one, the world isn't covered by by uh, physics; it's governed by emotion mm. um, and narrative. And so everything is um, wibbly wobbly and very strange. And so having a core mechanic which is that basic which is that like like you can't uh, you can't partially succeed on it you you fail or you or you succeed and there's bits there's wiggle room where you can have it happen in the middle but I, ultimately it's an interpretation between you and the gm with some ritual objects mm. in the middle of it and that is because die uh because the core action of it is so vague we I, I wouldn't have wanted to try and do something like apocalypse world and define the seven most common actions in die i wouldn't want to do this uh to try and cover absolutely everything but instead have something which is very bare bones which then which then the gm and the players negotiate their way around i mean it's one of the key things is like what do you get an advantage for in die we don't tell you you know, and there's one of these bits where you say like even like spells that the, the godbinder has it's like advantage against creatures of evil What's the creature of evil decided at the table? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we explicitly leave stuff to be defined because that's more interesting than shutting down stuff. I think mm. actually it's worth stating the other reason why I made the, the mechanic so simple was the fact that it's not all player facing. Like monsters mm. roll. It, like, and for me, that's important in Die that everyone you meet in the world is the same statistic reality as you do. Because mm-hmm. we're talking about a fantasy versus reality game. If you make the players more real or less real than the uh, the people they meet, you've already answered the question. <laughs> you know, right. uh, so like so philosophically, I had to do it that way around. But as a player, yeah, I, I knew that I, it needs to move quickly. So if the GM is rolling for monsters as well, it has to be cut to the bone too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the other flip of it. It is an interesting thing that you said that the world itself of die is not driven by physics. Like that's not the main guiding principle. It's driven by narrative. Like. So, so, sorry, that's me guessing. I'm 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 sure there's some sort of scientific explanation in the back of Kieran's head. Yeah. I mean, but but it's true. Like within the the comic, like when you build this world, it's entirely built around your players, your players' characters, fears and emotions and regrets and life experience. Like that is the you know physics. That is the reality of the world. Mm. So you can use that as justification for any kind of difficulty swings that you want. Uh, because that's the driving force, like what these players are feeling rather than, you know, what is true uh, as as written by Newton. Yeah. I think it's much more interesting to have this is difficulty too because it's your dad rather than yeah. this is difficulty too because the wall is very tall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true. I mean, it's like keeping, it's one of the, we have the kind of the core sort of GM principles of die. And one of them is like, if it gets too fantastical and genre, you bring it back to normality and vice versa. So they're kind of like, if someone just starts throwing fireballs, you want to st- stop, you've thrown a fireball, how do you feel about that? You know, last week you were a depressed teacher uh, in a class, teaching students you don't like, now you're throwing a fireball, tell me about it. You right. know what I mean? So that's so much, how does it feel like to stab your dad through the chest with a chainsaw? You know, these kind of, you go, when it starts getting too genre, you drag it back and also vice versa. Like when it starts getting too grounded, you make it weird. Oh, that's true. I think that's really interesting. I mean, there's one really small mechanic in the core game, which I, I decided to include because just because there was early on in the playtest, there was a tendency, once, or at least for some players, once you got past Persona Gen and you went into Die, 
they started treating themselves like the adventurers, which is one reason why you start doing all the stuff I've just described. But it's also a very simple flashback mechanic. Like if you flashback to something in the real world that gives you kind of emotional reasons to be better at this task, you get an advantage. And you do that for like once a, once a session. And that, of course, is encouraging people to bring back their real life into the game, you know, and get a small advantage for it. And for certain, I mean, just a lot of the players will just do it anyway. But some players will go, oh, wait, wait, I can get an extra dice for like thinking about, you know, I miss my dad or whatever. You know, uh, and that's like a, a small mechanical way to encourage even the most mechanically minded players to role play. You rube, we just made you feel. How dare we? <laughs> and then just as far as the mechanics go, advantage and disadvantage in this game is just adding or subtracting one or more D6s to your dice. Yes. Board. I did think about changing that just for obvious D&D reasons. But the, uh, no, it's just the right word. And also, it was yeah. originally a much more complicated system, but Grant eventually talked me into removing the bad dice mechanic. And the, uh, There was a capital just... B, capital D, bad dice. <laughs> and it only showed up in like one paragraph, but it was the, it was underpinning the core of the system. And we had to sort of like, hey, hey, so Kieran, I've, I've changed it so there's no bad dice. I'm very sorry. To Kieran's tremendous credit, he was like, oh, but I wrote a joke about the bad dice later. Yeah, I, it's okay. We I can take out the joke as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. You had to like, just, it was just, it was a mechanical cludge because we don't need to go into the math because anyone listening can tell we're bad at math. But the, um, mm. but it was specifically because, you know, adding one dice is, to increase the difference by one is the equivalent of adding, you know, removing two dice. <laughs> you know, so mathematically, it's all kind of broke. So you had to add, a, you add the bad dice. If it rolls four plus, you subtract one. So that mathematically, it makes sense. But at the same time, it's really kludgy. And the only funny thing about it was you had to basically basically scapegoat one dice. <laughs> like, this is the bad dice now. No one to sh- shun the bad dice. And you had to like, just, exactly, yeah. It's like put it on a, tape, a pedestal and boo at it, uh, which is a lot of fun, but also should be cut from an RPG, which is why you have professionals <laughs> who win any to look at your game. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. I, I, I do regret uh, not having the experience of being able to shun some of the dice, but I'm sure players will do that regardless of whether or not it's built into the game. Yeah, yeah. The 80s are over, and you're not kids anymore. Now is a much darker time. Something happened to you, and you got touched by the weird, and it made you wild, and it made you powerful. This is the world of The Lost Bay, a suburban gothic RPG. A fever dream set in 1990X and inspired in equal parts by dark fantasy, horror classics, and the 90s indie culture. After years of development and thanks to the feedback and support of a community of early enthusiasts, The Lost Bay is coming to Kickstarter featuring a full rulebook and complete setting designed by Eco, kick-ass art by Evangeline Gallagher, killer maps by Strega Wolf Vandenberg, and six additional modules by some of the coolest designers in the indie scene. So go to thelostbayrpg.com to be notified on launch. That's thelostbayrpg.com. We touched on some of the Paragons. I just kind of want to go through uh, the other Paragons that are available to the players. We, we touched on the Neo. Can you talk about the other Paragons represented by the D4, D6, D8, D12, and D20? Okay, uh, I mentioned the Neo, who's basically your take on rogues. Let's go down to the D8, which is our Emotion Knight. The Emotion Knight, which they're never called Emotion Knights in the game. They're always called one of the eight emotions. Because there's a 
there's a genuine proper psychology guy who I've ripped, I've taken his theory, ripped it out and plugged it into an RPG system. I'm sure he'll approve. Um, <laughs> so, the, you know, the, the, you've got these eight primary emotions and each of these nights is kind of a paladin of them. And the idea, the more they feel that emotion, the more they get to do their powers. Um, and low level, it's much more like standard sort of fighter abilities. High level is something called creative violence where they can burn all the emotion up and defeat something enormous. And, you know, armies, gods, like it's generally uh, the moment where you pull the you pull the sword and use it all and you take it down however you choose and that's one of the fun things about creative violence explicitly you get to define how it happens so what does creative violence look like and that's kind of that's one of the useful things about the paragons almost all of them have these kind of low level more like procedural abilities mm-hmm. like you know D stuff and then you've got the high level big narrative abilities where shit's really going to happen and you're going to change the story in meaningful way or big ways rather emotionally and the idea like it's a bit paladin-y. It's, you know, if you, t- if you play a rage knight, it's a bit berserkery. But at the same time, it's about the emotions, you know? So they're fun. And obviously the D8, because the D8 is the classic fighter dice in uh, D&D. Let's go up to the Godbinder. Godbinder's D12. D12 is the, it's our cleric class. It's basically, because um, it's the way about D&D is like, yes, I can do miracles, but only small miracles. <laughs> My God will help me cure this small wound, and then I'll allow me to cure five other small wounds, and then I'm done. <laughs> And it's like, what, what an earth relationship with a god is that? And it's this weird, sort of the idea of taking that as an, some kind of deal, you you know, the whole kind of deal with god aspect. Maybe you bastard for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the godbinders go gone from. As well as like a normal script, smaller scripture, they've also got the ability to pick up the D12 and talk to any, one of their gods and say, hey, I want this done. What will you? What do you want for it? And the god will pitch you and back and forth and you'll make a deal. And some of the deals are involve this currency we have called debt, which is a bit more open. But sometimes it's like, okay, sure. I want you to do is make sure step fire to this castle and I'll bring your friend back from the dead. Or the, you know what I mean? So and the fun thing about the Godbinder is, and what happens it's really quite spelly mechanically. Another hand, it's a real great role-playing thing. Because you pick up the dice and suddenly you've got a number of NPC in your head. Like you start with one, and but abstractly you can get all 12. <laughs> so you've suddenly got 12 gods existing, you know, anytime you pick up the dice. And that's really that's something really fun, and so much great stuff just comes from that. Um, D12, of course, 12, most pantheons. It is an amazing, like, just the Godbinder class and, like, being able to talk to us is an amazing help for game masters. When, like, when you need a Deus Ex Machina, it's built <laughs> into the game in such We've a got 12. fun way. we got 12. And, like, it's built in that, like, yeah, this is going to come at a cost and I'm going to tell you exactly what that cost is. Or maybe I'm going to call in that cost late. Like, it's just such a great yeah. way for game masters to call back, increase the stakes, decrease the stakes, I'm a big fan of that class. It's really, honestly, it works really well, especially like the, the, the most the most powerful miracles are normally done for an IOU. In other words, not a promise, specifically something big down the line. And of course, that's really, that's a good on the mantelpiece. When will the god call that favor in? Oh, but yeah. also the GM has no idea at that point, <laughs> probably. I mean, well, they may, but they know it's like, here's something big. They probably won't be able to say no to it. Like, and that's really, really great for like kicking the plot around. And most of the campaigns that I've ever ran have involved killing one of the gods at one point. There's a lot of like, you know, <laughs> when the gods go too far. Um, let's go down to the D6. D6 is the the fool. You mentioned the D6 is kind of the class that runs the game. So words, he's got a D6, but everyone else is D6. So kind of the joke is, oh, there's nothing special about this guy. They're just kind of the fool. Um, the fool's kind of like half of the bard. It's kind of the swashbuckly, playful, not taking it too seriously. I think the fool's a player archetype rather than a character archetype. You had literally stole my next sentence there. Right? <laughs> I'm so sorry. sorry. No, no, I'm no. so sorry. That, go ahead. There, there's all, no, no, you're totally right because I'm not going to go. This is another half. The classes all kind of, kind of map onto other sorts of players as well. 
And the fall is literally the classic noughties, Leroy Jenkins, not taking it too seriously, charging without thinking class. The fall basically gets um, gets to add their D6 anytime they're acting something ill-advisedly. And of course, it's one of the things you don't want to push that too far. It's basically entering a fight is well worth having that dice. It's it's really carefully planning an ambush that may mean you no, don't take that dice. It's that kind of like, it's more about... And, you, and the other thing about the fall is it's not that you feel like carefree or anything, it's you act carefree. Mm-hmm. It's got a, it's got a real kind of like if people are kind of being playing against type, you've got a real kind of tears of the clown aspect with the fool. And the fools have a really big ability is they've got hyper luck basically because what they get to do is they have to they can doodle on their d6 and if they roll the the symbols they've doodled on, um, you know their flukes of luck happen around them or flukes of bad luck if they kind of go wrong. I really like the vandalizing the dice aspect to it. You know what I mean? Because that speaks to the fundamental. Oh yeah reverency of the class oh and they've also got the ability to hand over their dice to the gm to get them out of anything that that is my favorite part of the of the fool when we did paranoia my favorite psychic power we did was called memory holes and you roll it and then if you succeed you ask the gm to help you and then you wake up after that's happened and so basically it's 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 a real sort of hey fuck me up <laughs> like like I, I don't want this trouble i want different trouble and it's lovely that the fool can just do that at any point. It's like giving it, and there's like the, the other way as well. As well as like you're giving it back, and then the gym is going to fuck them. There's also the aspect that if if the player if the fool messes up in messes up a plan in some way, they can get their dice back early. And that the real push and pull there is they can, they can choose what to do as opposed to what the gym hits them with. They can perhaps get away with something a bit smaller. <laughs> and those like these, you know, and the moment you say to the party, like, if I didn't do it then, you have no idea what that monster on the other side of the table would have done to us. I had to insult the princess. And that's at the fault. That's the other aspect of the game. I kind of wanted them to have a variety of mechanical complexity. But that falls kind of, as well as a playful class, it's also a class which is less rules dense, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's still very powerful, but less rules dense. Then down to the D4. The D4 is the other half of the bard, which is basically the idea of like, if you think about bards, like they do emotion, emotion control. You know, that's what bards do. They sing songs and they make people feel stuff. And that's petrifying. You know, the, that's literally, if you're viewed through any modern understanding of like emotions, that's really creepy. So basically the, uh, the dictator is the idea of the bard as a horror class. Uh, they have a thing called the voice, which is the way of performing. They say things and they control people's emotions. If they're very, very powerful. Like um, it's quite, it's almost not almost impossible to resist, but very hard to resist. And uniquely for the class, they have trouble rolling low. Like instead of rolling, they roll the D4, and that's the number of successes they get as standard. And the other rest of the dice pool is how you modify it up and down. So if you roll four successes and roll zero successes on the D6, you can't change it from four. So four's a bigger, a really big emotional effect. You might just suddenly like, oh, I'm going to try to frighten this person away, and suddenly you've just killed them, you know. And that's the, or if you roll a critical failure, oh, that person's stuck on that emotion forever, you know. The dictator are petrifying to be around, and generally, um, just creepy in every single way. And a lot of the other classes are about the, what you do to get power, you know what I mean? Like the negotiation. I want this. You give me that. That push and pull. The dictator is slightly different in terms of like. There's not many strings for you, for the dictator. You just hurt everyone around you. Mm-hmm. And what will this power do to you? And it's a tempting thing. It's the idea art is creepy. It's kind of what the dictator is about. And finally, the D20, or to the other end, which is the master. Uh, and the masters are basically, it's the, in the, if you're playing the game standardly in rituals, that's basically a GM-only class. It's basically the, you know, the classic 1980s idea, the GM, the GM is the hostile bad guy who cheats behind the screen or whatever. It's that. 
the gem, uh, the master is basically sort of reality warper, like uh, a wizard as reality warper, hostile GM as uh, character class. Um, and they get to do stuff like um, put together rules to make their own spells. And they also get to basically cheat. <laughs> There's no two ways around it. They get to bend the rules. And if you're like playing a player master, you know, if you're really pushing the rules and risking death from the judges of all reality, you go, yeah, like that Robin Hood guy we've just made up, just turned up to help us, I reckon. I reckon he was probably passing. You know, and they check, and suddenly it's here. If on the GM side, it's got a much more simple thing of they have a kind of a number of cheats they can do throughout the game, and that's partially like obviously a balancing thing. It's also partially a if you end up fighting the, the master at the end of the game, it just kind of stops them being killed quite as quickly. You know, because they can cheat to avoid dying a few times, mm-hmm. which is a nice uh, and it gives the game a climax in a different way. Yeah, master's fun. I'm sorry, especially if you've got the player side. Literally, the judges of all reality turn up when you're caught cheating, and you've got to basically beg for your life. Uh, and you know, then you get punished depending how well you beg. So that's that's a fun like, and that's a class in the appendix. There's a lot in die. There's a lot. I mean, it's a what a 400 page book now. Yeah, 416 something like that. Big old book. Just, just a side question. Big when, old you, book. when you first you know envisioned this comic, and you're like, oh, of course, I've got to create a role playing game to go along with it. At what point did you realize, oh, this is going to be 400 additional pages of role playing game? Probably when uh, Grant cut half of it. Yeah. <laughs> we thought it was probably about 800 before that. Yeah, when I managed to trim it down to, to 400 pages. Um, no, that's, that's, that's the thing, like it's 400 pages. We're quite generous with layout. Ryan Hughes, a legendary comics designer, was heavily involved in Die from the get-go. And so there was this very clean design, which meant which we tried to imitate. And, we, we, and thankfully, we were able to get him in to sort of chat to us about, about making it work. And so we've got quite a lot of white space, quite a lot of art, because we're able to use Stephanie's art. But it is a whacking great book. Mm. Massive. And yeah, before then, it would have been kind of like an Encyclopedia Britannica, all written uh, first person in, in Kieran Gillen's voice. Uh, yeah, yeah. As the, it was the equivalent of uh, of celebrity guest Kieran Gillen putting his arm around you in the pub and telling you how to run a game, yeah. and then and we were like, "Well, let's let's make it a game." Yeah, and never leaving you alone. It's literally been called <laughs> the pub by this very boring man telling you about his home RPG. You do worry about the size because it really has got a lot in there. But at the same time, as you know, as Grant says, there's a lot of art, there's a lot of space. But at the same time, the core game is very accessible. That's mm-hmm. the really important thing. Is like. Well, I was thinking that, yeah, I wanted this to be a really good game for people who know RPGs, but also knew that people are going to pick this up not knowing anything. It's a weird game to be your first RPG, but I want it to be your, accessible and friendly to anyone who wants to give it a shot. And that doesn't mean reading a 400-page book. That's like reading a couple of sections, maybe reading the handouts, have a go at rituals, you're sorted, you know? And, and trusting the book as well, like trusting mm. the rituals, trusting the system to be like, okay, well, well, we'll get something fun out of this. And the like, die as written is formulaic. And that's one of the strengths of it in the, oh, like, like because it's formulaic, we can afford to get a character arc in a one shot. And because it's formulaic, people can, people can poke fun at that formulaic whilst also taking part in it. And that level of structure, and that's, that's the thing, that's the thing that we, we've written stuff out. We've written it long form as opposed to just sort of being brisk and saying, okay, blah, 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 make it up yourself, on you go. Like, no, 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 we've like, if, and you can make it up yourself. You can just go back to that D6 pool if you want. But these structures are there to, enable you to come up with, with, with something as evocative as the comic, but you made it yourself. There's a lot of showing you're working. You know what I mean? Like, I, for me, it's like, this is how, how I wrote Die. This is how I made up messed up people. This is how I made up a world. Yeah. Formula is, is tricky. It always sounds like an insulting word there, but it's, you know, it's not like saying, this is how you do it. There's a bit like mm. halfway through, we say, idea plus idea equals novelty. I loved reading that. 
that's what correct. You're all my job is. Is that okay? That's boring. If I suddenly add this, that's less boring, you know. And that's that's it. That's what we do. I mean, early on, like always in the add-on scenarios, you had a set list of questions, but the core die game didn't because it was it's had free form. And one of the first things Mina said was like, for God's sake, write <laughs> write a load of questions for this. Give us give a set <laughs> set of questions. And I did, and obviously, and it makes the game much better. Especially now, you can add in different social groups and plug them in. You know what I mean? There's so much of like relax follow this we really have hey we've playtested it a lot you know i mean it's one of the things i've really you know it's it's a game that i've put for the ringers and seen how it's worked and seen how it's failed and like bits where tripped up players and we've sort of ended up something i'm really proud of like in between like i mean the the game and how it's been expressed and how it's been edited and pulled together like i I think it genuinely looks after people that's actually Mm. the kind of really intensity of indie rpgs i played before i started writing die the thing I took from that was like how little the care there is for GM in this industry. Mm. I was distraught over games that even games my players thought went well. I was distraught for weeks later. And I was aware that like, now you've got, we've got to be kinder to GMs. We've got to like allow them to like be more relaxed, not to worry about it as much, you know, mm. and all those kind of things. And that's kind of part of the attitude I wanted to percolate for the game, really. Like, uh, you got this kid. <laughs> so I like, patronizingly. And that's like the tagline of this show is if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Like, mm. I want to make sure that people are set up for success, that they're, they have the best chance of having a good time whenever they play a game. And I think this game especially really does, as you say, go out of its way to make a GM feel like very comfortable and very at ease, especially when following the, the rituals, uh, which is the way that we're going to be playing on this show. I kind of want to talk about rituals as an overall thing, because this is the way the game was initially designed to be played. There is a lot of stuff in the in the back of the book about how to play Die as a long-term campaign, but the, the rituals is the way that we're going to be playing it. Can you talk a little bit about how that was broken down and what that kind of looks like for a game master? That's a really big question. It is a big question. When I started designing Die, one of the rings I really did early on was I knew the basic, the persona genders really changed very little. The ritual coming to die has changed very little. The first encounter has changed very little. And the climax has changed very little. But the middle world generation bit, early on, it was made up every single time. I did Persona Gen, then I stepped away from the table and I went, where the hell am I going to put these people? (laughs) You know, and literally every single game, I had to work out where they were going to be and how I was going to do it. And I was like, and of course, that's a hard thing to like teach anybody. There's an element of draw the rest of the fucking L. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) But then I actually what actually turned out to be a very boring game. Like the personas came up, came up and the answers were quite boring. <laughs> it's like this group were because all the other groups had something interesting, so I could grab that and run with it. Right. Like, you know, they, they, all people were in a band. I said it at the Reading Festival. You know, all that all that kind of stuff. I'd really and this one like nothing big. And I was like, what can I do? And I just stepped around and thought, the old RPG world. I'll send them to that old teenage RPG world. Because that allowed me to ask questions and we can build off, you know, yeah. That really that's similar. Oh, that's great, that's robust, that'll work. Then I realized. That's robust for everybody. As long as you know any group that went to an RPG world together can go to that RPG world and have a shared social thing that means something to all the persona. Right. And that was one of those kind of like, that's that that's the first one. That's the first game everyone should play. And that's where rituals came from. I said, okay, this will work. <laughs> and I guarantee you, by narrowing the boundaries of like complete freedom, you know it's going to work. In the same way, the climax always ensures no matter what happens in the middle, they can just wander around and drink in the bar. You know, at the end of the session, master will turn up and have a climax. You know what I mean? Right. That's the be- the basic of story structure. We've got a strong beginning, we've got a strong end, and like as long as you've got a strong end, the players will forgive anything. 
<laughs> you know, so like, you know, th- there's all that kind of, that. Th- sorry, d- does that mostly answer the question? No, it definitely does. The players make up the middle bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why they care about it. Yeah. One of the heartbreaking things about being a games designer, and especially writing fiction in games, uh, fiction, uh, world building, that sort of thing, with die is very light on. There's very little any sort of canonical information in there. Um, but anything I come up with will be, if it's used, regurgitated by a bored, tired person who is trying to convince four other bored, tired people who just want to go kill the orc that, oh, this is a really interesting story. And it's going to be a fraction as interesting as one, one person has an idea and, the other, and someone else goes, oh, yeah, and... And that, that's it. That's, that's much better than anything I come yeah. up with. So giving people the tools to do that means that they'll have a fun time. I mean, think about the bit between the two sessions. That's the reason why you can do it in a one shot. It's just slightly more work. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the bit you do the first session, you end at this cliffhanger that they've arrived in their teenage fantasy world. That's where you end the session. Then between first session and second session, you can do a bit of prep. Not a lot of prep. You just really just sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write down everything they said in Persona Gen. Okay, this person's upset with their dog. This person is having arguments with their boss. You know, big. You know, you know, the big. This person having. You know. The real big troubles, but also the minor bullshit. Right. <laughs> like, oh, this person really likes season two of um, Lost. This person wants to, you know, really misses um, the old, some old sweet brand they can't get anymore. You know what I mean? That's the stuff which is just, they, the stuff they threw off as a joke and they think you forgot about it. <laughs> so they'll remember the fact that, you know, they've got traumatic relationship with their dad. They won't remember, like, the, the, the season two of Lost. So when you turn up and suddenly you're on an, you know, you arrive and you're on an island <laughs> and there's something in the woods. Uh, and it's basically, you know, the ghost of your dad or whatever, or polar bear. You know what I mean? I've just made that up off the top of my head. But you know what I mean? Like, by yeah, taking, yeah. by mining the persona's details, and suddenly there's a bit we cut from the manual. Describe it as the marshmallow man rule. Yeah. Okay. You know, you ever watch the first Ghostbusters? Yeah. It was, um, it will take the form of like whatever we think of, and they think about the marshmallow man. That's die. Whatever the characters are thought about is going to be their marshmallow man. Uh, so, like, whatever the personas have come up with, and you can do that all the way through. It's that kind of, if you, if you've got a question you haven't got, it's like, if you've got, a, if you want to know something about them, you just ask. It's like, okay, tell me about your grandma's house. And, you know, you, or your character, your persona's grandma's house. And then suddenly, oh, yeah, it's a house that looks just like that in the woods ahead of you. There's a large wolf outside it. You know what I mean? Like, and that, you've just stand up there, but immediately you ask more questions if you want to know more stuff. And the players care about it because they've just made it up. And it's a really easy thing for GMing in terms of like, okay, mm. uh, describe me your house. Like, um, how many rooms is it in downstairs? Oh, there's three rooms. Great. There's three rooms. You're making them make up the dungeon map, but also being gem, you get to twist it any way you want. It's like, oh yeah, there's there's a stairs up. Oh, there's no stairs upstairs in this house. So, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? It is a great, very easy tool for like terror and suspense to like build very quickly and very easily in a way that players actually buy into and care about. Because I mean, I don't mean it's in a bad way. Players are really self-centered. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's well, well, I the mean, game is self-centered. Yes, exactly. It only exists because of them. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the fundamental narcissism of what we're doing, we're just making this up. And it's like, oh, this is us. And you see yourself reflected. And the great joy, what I like about die gemming is as opposed to just putting it all in the player's hands, which is so many really great games do, it kind of, it, you give it to GM, then GM twists it a little and then gives it back. Mm-hmm. And it's basically about being listened to. Yeah. This was, mm. I heard you, I saw what you did, and I'm giving it back to you as a present. It may be a present, which is a head in a box, but it's a present, you know? And that's the kind of, there's something really magic and caring about that. I am really excited for that aspect of just like, it, this is very much an exercise in like hardcore listening to your players and giving them back mm. what they want. And I am really excited for that. And I love that the first session of Rituals is so well 
uh, explained and written that it's such a great on-ramp for me as a, as a game master, for anyone as a game master. And then in the in the book, the between like sessions two and three, there's great resources that you guys provide of the kind of preparation you should do and like how you should prepare for the next sessions. And then my favorite part of it is at the end where it just says, but don't overdo it. Just where, wherever <laughs> you're at right now, just stop and that's fine. It's like chill. You're fine. You've Which got this. something, you know, we all need to be told sometimes. That's that first session was so designed as like, I mean, I used to be a video game journalist. So like the first session is very much, it's a training. It's a, it's the first hour of an hour. It's the first couple of hours of a, a, a game. It's like you, you go through, it, it teaches you about your characters. It teaches you about this stuff. Then you go into die. You have an initial encounter against some monsters. <laughs> you know, the mon- and you won't lose that fight, but it's a chance that everyone experiment their toy. You know, right. they pick up the stuff. They all have a cool character moment. You know what I mean? All the really, ba- as in here's a basic way. You can learn all the mechanics in an easy way. And then you'll end the session before we have to worry about anything too much. And in fact, there's still enough personalization in that first session. And everyone gets their cool magic girl moment of transformation and stuff. There's enough there that makes it feel like it. And even like later on, especially in the other ways of playing dive, different ways of doing it. But rituals is really basic in that kind of, if GM knows what happens next, tell them. If not, ask where the, ask what's outside. You know what I mean? Like, right. go east, what's it? You know, do I know what's east? If yes, tell them. If no, oh, so what, what's east of the town in your teenage fantasy world? It holds together, I swear. <laughs> I'm very excited to play it. Me too. I'm looking forward to it, hearing it. It's going to be a lot of fun. The last thing I want to talk about before we get out of here is specifically, and we've kind of been touching on it, you know, here and there throughout this this um, interview, but what advice do you guys have for game masters who are running this game for the first time and also for players who are playing this game for the first time? Like, I think we, we definitely talk a lot about how game masters can improve, but also players coming in in the right mindset and with the right attitude is a huge help to the game as a whole. Is there any specific advice you give to first-time players or game masters of this game? Kieran has much more advice than I do. He's run it a lot more than I have. But one thing I would say is Die is a game about your obsessions, about your character's obsessions. And so if, you're, if, if your obsession is the film Hellraiser 2, and then all of the things, uh, are, are, like all of the monsters are from Hellraiser 2, then it's really important that you as a person, not as a persona or a character or a made-up person, you, the actual person sitting around the table, knows what Hellraiser 2 is. <laughs> you have to pick obsessions, which at least one, preferably two people at the table, know what they are. Otherwise, it's not going to quite ring true. Also, you just get to dump <laughs> all, all of your things. So if uh, my die world would have Warhammer in it, there would be some sort of 40k element. There would be some sort of grim, dark bureaucracy in it. Mm-hmm. And I can lead into that and I can take the piss out of it and I can play with it. But I wouldn't be able to do Wheel of Time. I wouldn't mm. really have the first clue about how to do that. So I, I think that's that's my advice, is, is is know what you're talking about. And it's always the fan service aspect of Die. It's like, yeah, just do it. I mean, one of the biggest yelps I ever had from running a game with Die was when I dropped David Bowie backstage at the Reading Festival. Like, and the players almost died. And it's like, David Bowie isn't really here, guys. I'm just pretending to be David Bowie. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying he's here. But that was because they were four music obsessed with friends. You know what I mean? Like, mm. this is in some level, like, don't be afraid of doing stuff you care about. And that... that mm. Don't go too far away from home. Do stuff you, you're really interested in playing with. And the second is, like, this is especially people who've never played games before. It's like, go for it. Like, don't hold back on the questions. Like, be be big, make big, bold choices. It's like, I, I actually did some, in my latest newsletter, I did some kind of my five basic rules for players in any game. And like one of them, it is less of the general rules, but specifically saying I love it or I hate it is a better choice than anything middling in almost any story game. 
<laughs> yeah. like, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you feel about your parents? I love them or I hate them. It's much better. They're all right. You don't get. <laughs> you know, and that, like you're not trying to make balance. You're trying to make balanced people. You're trying to make people who are going to go into a fancy world and really get themselves through an emotional grinder. So, like, play, be open. The other one I'll give: really like listen to your friends. You know, like GMS to listen to. It's really good for all players anyway. Like you're in this together, but really excited about people's choices. You're, fr- you know, I hate this guy, and you know, this is my brother. You know, and or I love him. Like, why is why does his girlfriend treat him so badly? You know, or like any of those things. That that really like you're in it together. Because I always talk about this in RPGs generally. RPGs are like forming a band. Like you know, and uh, you, you're getting together, you're working out the rhythm that you're going to be playing together. You get, what we can do together? Are we going to be a punk rock band or we're going to be salsa? You know, and that's fine. There's no wrong choices. That's what you make in the room together. And that kind of commitment to like doing it, I think, die really rewards us. Yeah, I know. What one of the things I always try to tell my players, especially when they've never played before, is don't try to break the world, but don't worry about breaking the world. You're not going to, as long as you don't actively try to like really destroy this. But coming in in a very collaborative headspace and really listening is a what I'm excited about about this game. I think it's you know really sets the players and the game master up for success in that way that I really love. And I think it's just going to be so fucking fun. I'm really, I've been really geeking out about this game for a while. Just reread the comics, just reread the the game. Sent, you know, sent it off to all my players. They're all. I keep getting emails from them, being like, "Oh, I can't wait to try. I want to try this. I want to try this. I want to try this." Question, Brian. Yeah, go ahead. Do you want to ask you something? Yeah. Similar, is there any area you're worried about running? Like that, that's hmm. like flipping around. I might be able to give you specific advice if you've got any concerns. You're doing my job for me. <laughs> I'm extra unless I can't help it. Honestly, uh, anytime I run a new game, I'm always worried about like the first couple of minutes. Like that, like mm. the, the, the first moment where you get past the intro and then the game has to start. And I think for this game, I'm less worried about it because I think you've done a great job of setting up that first session. It's it's a little bit on rails in a way that like the start of a video game is, like you said before. I think my biggest worry is, and I think maybe it's because the comic book is so the world is so you know vast and exciting. My biggest worry is being able to weave enough of the players' backstories and wants and needs into the world itself to make it this exciting, expansive world. That's my biggest worry. Is is like the you know the big picture thing to make this as enjoyable and immersive and personalized to each of the players' experience as possible. I think the fact you're worrying about that it means you'll be fine. It's like, you know, because it's like, you know, it's just kind of, as you say, it's, it, it's listening and like, okay, how can I, it's almost like if I ever get a trope, how can I make this trope less, you know, because you, you have that checklist, which one of these things is most appropriate? Uh, so I think you'll be fine. So one of the things I, I guess you worry about, like, I think it is stressed, but like, don't be afraid that, like, you know, the first minute when the game starts, that they're sitting in die and they're there with the dice and they haven't picked it up yet. You can let that breathe. That's not when I, as a GM, I sit back and let the players have that first response to die. Like, or, you, or the, do the players think they're in a fantasy world? Do the players think they're tripping? Did the player grab a dice? Did the player do anything but grab a dice? And there's no wrong choices there. That's really when players start to really play. And, you know, let that moment breathe and then the fallen come in when it gets boring. Because, <laughs> you, right. you know, that's a kind of like, that's the, the going to a fantasy world is the magic of die. You know, making that moment as real as possible. All the rituals do that to some degree, but also letting people have a chance to just really live that. Like, what the, what the hell is this? Why, where's all the colour gone? Uh, you know, why is the person with chainsaws for eyes coming at me? You know, that, that's um, that, that's where the that's where that first session sings. I think I I can't always tell when a session or when a campaign is going well by the amount of time I can like sit back and my players are just running the games themselves. And once you get to that point where all of a sudden you sit back as a GM and realize you haven't talked for five minutes and your players are all building the world and exploring together, 
that's when I know it's successful. And getting to that point, like, you know, as quickly and efficiently, not, you know, not to make this, you know, too mechanical, but to get there as quickly and as easily as possible is what I'm always trying to do. And anytime you have a new game, it's, you've got, there's so many extra little tidbits. What are the mechanics? What are, what can this person do? What can't this person do? Getting to that point is what I'm worried about, but also very excited to do. Because um, I think this game has a lot of, a lot of great stuff that players can play with that I'm excited for them to, you know, start tinkering with and playing with. Excellent. Plus, you've got, uh, you're all streamers, aren't you? Like, you're, you're all like, you, you're, you play online. Everyone's pretty much performers. It's a, it's a very performy game. It streams good. Yeah. You're all right. There's a lot to lean into. No, I think, it, I think it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Listen, it should be good. Great. Any, any last minute things you guys want to say or add before I kind of start the outros? The important thing to do uh, when all the players sit down before the game starts is to you need to establish dominance. So you want to eat as many dice as you can in front of them. Yeah. Yes. 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 I find it so important. Make sure all the players buy it uh, from the directly from RRD. Yes. yes it's available, yeah, it's available yeah, yeah. for pre-order. They should buy them for yeah, themselves, yeah. for their friends, yeah. for their family, for their special enemies. edition. Yeah. Preferably with yeah, a backup yeah. copy in case you spill on oh, the first obviously. copy. Uh, that well, you need doubles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously. obviously. It's, it's, it's clear. Yeah. 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 Plus, plus, if you really want to impress the players by eating dice, get get official die branded dice from our pre order store and eat those. <laughs> they they're ergonomically designed to go down real smooth with minimal lubrication. Yeah, and then whenever you're just like kind of fiddling around the table, why fiddle with a regular coin when you can have a die branded fair gold coin? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Don't eat those. Those ones are poisonous. But aside from that, you're fine. You're fine. You can lick them. Can lick the coins. That's fine. That's all I want to do. Gentle with the coin anyway. Just yeah, yeah lick yeah, it. Yeah. Put on a Chew the quarter off your GM screen. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. That is it for this episode of My First Dungeon: Die. And if you head over to your podcast player right now, you will find episode zero of our actual play campaign featuring some amazing players. I cannot wait for you to meet. Before we get out of here, Kieran, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you online and what other projects you may want people to know about? I'm uh, Kieran Gillen. I'm Kieran Gillen almost everywhere. I probably won't be on Twitter properly by the time this goes out, but um, hopefully we'll see if I actually do that or not. But Kieran Gillen everywhere. I've got a, a newsletter on Button Down uh, where I send every week or so, and that's basically where I download everything. Uh, work-wise, I'm only writing one book for Marvel at the moment, which is The Immortal X-Men, where the X-Men are immortal until they die randomly. Uh, and I'm working <laughs> on a comic... <laughs> it's I'll tell you another time. Seriously, okay. there, there's so much stuff going on in the X Men you would not believe. And I'm working on other projects which are not announced, and I'll be like writing bits and pieces. Like basically, I'm just writing the Immortal X Men and nothing else announced at the moment. I'm writing, trying to work out what else to write for Die. Oh, one last Die tip: If you're mailing your players, don't make the subject line just Die, uh, because it makes it scares people. <laughs> they see it arrive in the inbox, and you make it say, regarding the game of Die, we will play, or something like that, because it can really like you can make people worried. Yeah, I almost made that mistake the first the first cast email. I was like, die, the RPG. If people want to find me, I am GS Howitt, or G Show It, with two T's at the end, pretty much everywhere. Um, like Kieran, I am also increasingly agnostic about Twitter, but it is the place I have the most sway, so I keep posting there. In terms of things I'm working on, um, on our upcoming game, um, it, we're, we're hopefully going to get into playtest before Christmas, is called Hollows. Hollows is a game about uh, you play 1860s monster hunters kicking in the back door of someone else's personal depression and brutally murdering their demons. I'm so looking forward to this. It's like it's, it's like Bloodborne crossed with Silent Hill. I think it's probably the best way I can do that. 
um, if you're if you're interested, um, search Hollow's playtest because I'm not very good at linking things. Uh, but you, you can find it. You can ask me. We'll sort it out. It's Luckily, I am very good at linking things. You can find links ah. to everything that everybody said down in the description. If you'd like to buy your own copy of Die, you can find it in the link in the description or go to rowanrookanddeckard.com to buy it or check out your friendly local gaming store. And if you like this show and want to support it, the very best way you can do that is going to your podcast player right now, clicking follow and leaving us a review. It really does help more people find the show and it just makes us feel real warm and good inside. You can find My First Dungeon online at My First Dungeon on Twitter. And as always, remember, if you're having fun, you're already doing it right. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, all, it's Brian. Real quick before you go, if you like this show and you want to support more great seasons, you should head on over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and jump into the dice pool. That's the name of our one and only Patreon tier that's just $5, where you'll get additional actual plays and extended talkbacks each and every month. We'll see you there. Splash! If you're looking for more great gaming content from everyone here at Many Sided Media, you should consider subscribing to the 20-Sided Newsletter. It's a free, bi-monthly newsletter for people who love games, make games, and just love making games. To subscribe, just go to 20sidednewsletter.substack.com or follow the link in the show notes.